like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very exciting one. You might know her Emmy-nominated work on a little show called The Simpsons or as a co-host on the Very Funny Lecture Hall podcast. Please welcome Brothy Gupta. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work, and I'm very excited to talk about today's movie. Yeah, so you had you seen it before? Oh, many, many times. Okay. I am a longtime fan of the movie, and... Uh, you know, it even has a little bit of that that extra charm where, like, my parents are like, no, that's not appropriate for children, and then you have to go uh-huh. find it elsewhere, so... Yeah. it's it's It hits, checks all the boxes for me. Yeah, and so you went to the nearest liberal arts college on Halloween <laughs> exactly. that you could get to, and you went straight to their student-run theater. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So before we get into today's movie, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, if it's something that you're generally into, or more into things that just kind of like play with the elements of it like today's movie does? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting, because when I was a kid, I was not into horror at all. I mean, I was like, like the amount that I was not into horror, and the amount that I was just scared of everything was (laughs) like, like for until I was maybe 16 or 17, I fully thought that Twister was a horror movie. <laughs> and that's hey, just natural like, disasters are scary. I get it. And it just, but the, here's the thing is that I, it turns out to just be a movie about storms and Helen Hunt. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it true. turns out it's not, great. there are no jump scares. <laughs> <laughs> that cow flying past, you know, if you're not expecting it, it might, might scare you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, I think it's weird. I just think the concept of, like, a tornado is, it, it's like, I don't know, it's like a cloud is vacuuming you, I guess, is my <laughs> basic understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And um, so, anyway, all of that is to say I was never a horror fan, and I only recently started to become more of a horror fan just in, like, I mean, I just like started watching because my husband was actually showing me a lot of horror movies. And isn't that how it happens? Isn't that how? (laughs) I mean, he shows me some kind of sci-fi movie. I show him Mamma Mia. He shows me a horror movie. I show him Mamma Mia (laughs) 2. He, you know, shows me The Wire. I show him a double feature of Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia (laughs) 2. It's got something's got to fill the void until Mamma Mia three, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, it, and I don't want to turn this into an episode entirely about Mamma Mia one and two, um, <laughs> I'm but happy it's to honestly do it. been <laughs> it's honestly been pretty impressive that it's taken me as long as it has to bring up either Mamma Mia <laughs> one or two. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm totally with you, and and it, the only thing that could improve this movie movie is if Cher sang in it, right? Exactly. Oh my god. Can you imagine? It can you imagine if she uh if she came in and just Here's the thing that I love about both Mama's Mia is <laughs> that there's no they are movies that prove and I don't mean for this to ever sound disparaging because I would if and I don't mean to be dramatic here but if I if anyone ever perceived what I was saying as judgmental or um putting down mama me in any way i would kill myself on the spot but it's the it's a set of movies that proves that the that a plot can be tenuous at best but if it features what is ostensibly a share concert (laughs) that's i mean that's it you don't need anything else you don't need anything else. You have, and the first one, you have Meryl Streep doing a million covers. It's like the biggest actors of our time. It's like we watch them get drunk together and do karaoke, <laughs> and it's the most fun you could have. I love that it's not just them getting drunk and having a good time. Also, it's like they're really the ones trying to sing. Like, I, we know Cher yeah. can sing. But for exactly. Meryl to go for it and and Stellan Skarsgård to go for, for it, like, 
Pierce Brosnan. Yes. For Pierce Brosnan. And there's also, oh, God, every element of Mamma Mia is incredible, is more incredible than the last. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. A triumph. It's a triumph of, of the of the cinematic medium. Yeah. Like, that's what, that's what, you know, you watch all these, like, old, all these, like, very sort of fundamental films. And it's, it's so fun to, like, you know, see, like, Billy Wilder's work or, you know, or to see Cecil B. DeMille's work and just to have the knowledge in the back of your head that it's all building towards Mamma Mia 1 and Mamma Mia 2. If only they knew. If they you, like, they it would blow their minds, if, and they would they would be so happy to know that was the legacy. And here is the thing: I am positive that that fateful day in two thousand eight, and then that second fateful day in twenty eighteen, were those were two days that the ghosts of Billy Wilder <sighs> and Demille and all these incredible filmmakers were fine finally felt like they could rest right hitchcock saying don't make me wait till 2028 for, don't for make me three. wait till, yeah yeah that's why his ghost is wandering around saying <laughs> he's cameoing in the movies just to be like by the way still still waiting here exactly yeah. oh exactly He's just wandering, going, uh, uh, Debbie Harry is still around. Don't squander <laughs> this. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Let's bring in some Videodrome elements, too, is all I'm saying, personally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so your question was about uh, Mamma Mia? That's right. So well, I answered that successfully? <laughs> I think so. Um, I am curious. You know, you say that you're more recently getting into horror is there yeah. a subgenre that more easily gets you into a movie? Are you like, oh, I love horror comedies, or is that too much like work? Oh, I love uh, sci-fi horror, some, something like that. You know, it's interesting. I My sort of, like, foray into horror was I loved, I mean, I loved, like, the big hits of these past few years. Like, I loved Get Out. That specifically was like a very that was like definitely a turning point of like of both the realization that like when you grow up it's actually you're better with horror movies than <laughs> than when you're a child and there's no reason that I shouldn't have expected okay. that. Um, if you insist. <laughs> yeah. Um but also I just like I think that was the first time I realized how closely connected horror and comedy actually are. Mm-hmm. And so that's like a real sort of boring answer. No, not at all. And that was like a very fun thing for me to just, I have sort of like a, a more of a mathy brain when it comes to writing, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know, we'll see if that's any good. But, um, <laughs> but I, I do think that like the elements that go into a jump scare are so similar to the elements that go into a joke. Um, and so like seeing that sort of play out is very interesting for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of like the other horror. I mean, I will say that obviously like Rocky horror is not really like a horror horror movie, but, uh, it's not interested in scaring. Exactly. But there is another sort of sub genre that I love of horror, which is like old, like campy horror, you know, mm-hmm. like the kind of like sixties and seventies, like slasher horror, like B movies essentially, yeah. because they are so, I mean, the whole, those are not trying to terrify you at a fundamental level. <laughs> like that's not something like your, like your Baba Duke. That's like, you know, this is all about, um, this is all about grief and processing grief. It's like, sometimes it's just about like, like a, one of those blood capsules just squirting out magenta liquid oh, and yeah. it's the sixties and someone, and there's just like enough, a lady baby. screaming. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there, I will say that there are some horror performances. So one thing in particular that I often think about with horror and with like my, more recent experiences with horror are that um, 
there was, so my husband showed me the movie Us over a series of nights because I needed, I needed a break after like each act because Lupita Nyong'o is so scary in that. Ooh, she's amazing. so good. I mean, yeah. she's like incredible. I like Twice thought over. that she should Twice over amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the wet, like the voice that she gets into, I like there were, I had to have a stop the movie and then I made my husband look up interviews of Lupita Nyong'o on like, or like her doing like carpool karaoke <laughs> just to like reset. Like, oh, this is like a very, very talented artist. This mm-hmm. isn't a very scary lady. <laughs> <laughs> this is like someone who like went straight from the Yale school of drama <laughs> to being in movies. It's, it's a very impactful performance. I mean, yeah, that voice is, outrageous it's outrageous it's incredible but yeah so like more sort of more like classical horror i have started seeing you Mm. know recently but yeah i really tend to love the campy stuff yeah what what about you what is your like history with horror my okay so you're actually going to be the first one to hear this my mom has been yelling at me over and over again because the way that I usually tell this story is that uh, it was the movie It, the TV miniseries, and oh, I watched it wow. too young in a hotel room with some of my friends, and I was too scared to admit that I was too scared to watch it because of oh. the social repercussions, <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. would be way worse. Yeah. And then the first thing that happens in that movie is a little kid named Georgie dies, and so I was like, well, this is too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this seems more like a premonition than anything. Right. Exactly. But my mom insists that my first experience with horror that really scared me off for a very long time is that we went to go see the movie George of the Jungle. I mean, it came out when I was very young, truly like a baby, pretty much. And uh, there was like a defective speaker right next to where we were sitting. And so it was like crackling very low, very low. And then right when he screams, it came back in full volume and uh, I freaked out in the theater and ran out. <laughs> and, Incredible. Uh, yeah. So that, that according <laughs> to them is the, is my first experience with horror. And so for a very long time, I was also not into it with a capital N. Yeah. And it really took ha- like being, it really took a conscious effort of being like, okay, I enjoy film. I am interested in, like being well-rounded and to just ignore a genre like how can you call yourself well-rounded and just be like but except for that (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so i sort of like dipped my toes into a lot of the campier stuff as sort of a way to get used to it and get used to the structure of a horror movie and like kind of what to expect and then sort of as it evolved seeing like I was more acclimated to the story and the beats of a horror movie. So when it was just effects driven, I was able to like sort of divorce myself from it in a little bit of an easier way. Yeah. So what were like your favorite, what were the movies that sort of changed you changed like your outlook on horror, I guess. I would say probably the Friday, the 13th movies were some of my just absolute favorites. They really do hit the like campy quality pun not intended considering that they're set at camp but i think that they do hit the beats in a way that is funny they had like they started early enough that it is like the red paint blood a lot of the time and in a goofy way at the beginning and where a lot of those franchises sort of really hit dips in quality i feel like the jason for the friday the 13th franchise slash jason's movies you know, even the bad ones, I'm like, well, there's some, like, dumb fun to be had here in a way that I don't always feel is the case with the other ones. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I love the... I don't know that I've seen the Friday the 13th movies, but I started watching, like, a year ago, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. Mm-hmm. Which is a very fun, kind of campy yeah. thing. I think that it was... I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street or it was Halloween. It must have been Nightmare on Elm Street that where it, it like takes place in Ohio or something like that or yeah, like somewhere Springwood. in the Midwest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it is just the amount of palm trees in every frame. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. 
That's so funny. Yeah, absolutely. I love the palm, the sprawling palm trees of the American Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) It's a staple. It's a staple. It's a real staple. Yeah, Freddy Krueger is scary. Yeah, it is. It is. I agree. Freddy, that's a a scary concept at the very least. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned Mamma Mia, of course, a triumph. Yes. The movie today, a triumph. Are you generally into musicals? Is that something that you like as a general rule, or are those just standouts? I really love musicals. I have always been a huge fan of musicals. Yeah, I have always loved... Like, Rocky Horror kind of combines, like, every element that I love, because Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's funny, it's weird, it's campy, it's... There's, like, a little bit of horror, there's that, like, very sort of classic... 80s touch of sci-fi in it and it's a musical um uh so it's like that and like little shop yeah it's like that (laughs) like little shop of horrors that i love yeah yeah i really love the i really love the musical Hell yeah, me too. Uh, was a, uh, I was in theater growing up, so I, I definitely have a soft spot in my heart for the musical as well. And uh, this this is, I feel like, such a great intro for a lot of people into musicals and yeah. getting them into and being like, oh, it's not necessarily just like My Fair Lady or something. Exactly. Like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't have to start off with like a a, a lady being in society. In the society world of, like, the 1910s. Damn you, society! Exactly. (laughs) Which is, look, am I... Sure, the the plot of My Fair Lady, exact same as Rocky Horror. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, that's actually true. That's actually true. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, They sort of work best as... They they work best as companion pieces. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. You have to watch... Rocky Horror to then have the knowledge base. You go back to My Fair Lady and you say, "Exactly." Now I see how it led to this. Yeah, there's actually a part in My Fair Lady where it says across the screen, "Please pause and watch all (laughs) of Rocky Horror, and then come back." For the longest time, people were like, "What are they talking about?" And then finally, (laughs) and then finally, they made the movie Rocky Horror. (laughs) Somebody said, "We've been sitting on this gold mine here." we just got to make that movie. <laughs> no one is watching the rest of My Fair Lady. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, as as we've sort of uh, touched on here, the movie we're talking about today is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Jim Sharman's movie adaptation of the Rocky Horror Show, No Picture, but, or, but music, book, and lyrics by Richard O'Brien. Jim also did direct the stage version. And I find the recursive nature of this to be pretty interesting because the play started as a parody of movies. And so the fact that it then became a movie again, it then also kind of became a live show again with the audience interaction and everything. Yeah. It's really just kind of going in a really interesting circle here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean... I when I was in college, I was in the shadow cast mm. of Rocky Horror, which is like a very sort of that it's like the most college age thing to do mm. is to be in the shadow cast of Rocky Horror. <laughs> because basically you have to watch the movie so many times that you have every movement memorized. <laughs> but yeah, I went to a school called Wellesley, which is like a very small liberal arts college like right outside boston it's a historically women's college um and so i played rocky is what i'm trying to say (laughs) that rules yeah it was awesome it was so much fun but yeah it was like it's such a part of american youth culture i feel like Mm -hmm. there's this very like i don't know it, it it almost feels like like it's a rite of passage to either be in a shadow cast or go to right. a thing where you have to yell whenever Susan Sarandon screams. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's much it's much less fun to be in the shadow cast of Stepmom starring Susan Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful movie. Much less fun to be in that shadow cast. The Bull Durham shadow cast, on the other hand, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that is a huge part of the the history of the movie, this sort of shadow cast aspect. We'll definitely touch on that. But I want to talk about the origination of it, sort of, uh, even yeah. the theater aspect of it. O'Brien has described the story as a modern-day Hansel and Gretel, as well as comparing our duo of Brad and Janet to Adam and Eve with Frank as the snake. And I do think it's interesting. It uh, originated in Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> which I think is a really funny place for this what? to start. Oh, my God. Jim had cast Richard in a small role about which he said, quote, I only had one line in Superstar. See my purse. I'm a poor, poor man. I used to sing it with great gusto on stage, but off stage, I was getting pretty upset. And finally, <laughs> he had his shot and he was scheduled to take over the role of Herod. Unfortunately, he was fired right after his debut performance in a Saturday matinee. Because, quote, the directors wanted me to play Herod like a rock and roll star. I was more than delighted with this idea. Elvis was my idol. I had this wonderful white suit with gold lapels. I did this great rock and roll dance. And they were just like, what the fuck are you thinking? This is out. You're fired. You're immediately fired. Right. I kind of really love the idea of doing like an Elvis impersonation for Herod personally. I think that that's a really funny idea. (laughs) Get Austin Butler in there for the remake. I mean, he's already broken. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that... So what you're asking for is Elvis in the remake. Right. Yeah, I guess I do want Elvis in the remake. (laughs) (laughs) Because is Austin Butler still trapped as Elvis? I think he is. Is it that he is trapped in Elvis's spirit or is Elvis trapped in his body? Oh, wow. Well, this is the real question now, isn't it, I guess? Um, (laughs) I feel like it's got to be a part of both, right? (laughs) I think it's so funny that they made a movie and it turns out the actor is like, I am stuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. I haven't been able to come out of it. (laughs) Please help me, mama. (laughs) Yeah. And now we just have to now we just have to, like, I don't know, observe him when he goes to the bathroom. (laughs) Someone's got to go in with him now. (laughs) That's right. Make sure he doesn't take the impression too far. Exactly. (laughs) So it was during this period of unemployment that Richard began writing what was then known as, quote, they came from Denton High, and Jim helped him polish it up. And it was about like a 40-minute long show originally. Oh, interesting. They didn't really work on the script too hard, but as rehearsals began, the cast was having such a great time with it. The show was evolving. They decided to pad it out to a full-length show. And just seeing what was considered like the padding out part is crazy to me because it's stuff like the time warp was like, oh, we need like a dance number. <laughs> wow. So you just cranked out time warp um, and, that's and amazing. inserted it. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, that's like the song. Exactly. It's not, I mean, it's not only probably, yeah, the most famous song I would say, but also really helps to sort of introduce the dramatic shift in tone where we all enter the castle together. And I do, I do mean that because part of what I love about this movie so much is that Brad and Janet are such perfect audience proxies that you really feel swept up in it and like you're there watching and baffled along with them. Yeah, no, that's such a good way to put it. They are because like, Janet is, you know, she's like, so, you know, bewildered by everything that's happening, whereas Brad is like a little bit more curious. And he's Mm -hmm. a little bit more like, he like, sort of keeps he his attitude is very funny. In the beginning, when they like, kind of first meet, like, right before they first meet Frank, um, where Brad is like, what a fun cultural experience we're having. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, it really is, they are these sort of proxies for the viewer. Definitely, definitely. Our true star, however, is the incredible Tim Curry as Dr. Frank and Furter. Yeah. He met Richard while in the original London production of Hair, and then ran into him at a gym looking for, quote, a muscle man who could sing. And when Tim asked <laughs> why, Richard gave him the script, and the rest is history. Oh, I thought you meant Tim was looking for a muscle man <laughs> who could sing. <laughs> Hey, I don't know what Tim was doing there. That's possible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But just for unrelated reasons, just because he has like, he's on some kind of a scavenger hunt. (laughs) Tim is so iconic in this performance that between 1973 and 1975, he played the role on stage in London, New York and LA. Wow. That's right. The trifecta. The trifecta. (laughs) Richard said that he based the dramatic and manipulative Frank on his mother, which I feel like is a lot to unpack there. 
Oh, wow. That really is. <laughs> O'Brien originally saw himself in the role of Eddie until Jim persuaded him to play Riff Raff. Mm. O'Brien said, I was really nervous about the whole thing. All I wanted to do was play Eddie, pop out of a Coke machine, sing a rock and roll song, and pop back yeah. into the Coke machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be unfrozen and then on a motorcycle. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. And I definitely relate to that. I remember um, when I was in high school, we were doing 42nd Street, and I was playing the, like, financier. And so I had, like, three lines of solo, and then I got to just, like, fade into the background and not really have to sing too much. And I was like, this yeah. is the perfect role. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, my husband had a similar stint in the theater with Bye Bye Birdie, where he had, like, one line. I forget what his line was but i do know that when he was in high school he really irritated their theater director by like every day during rehearsal and again one line he would go what is my motivation <laughs> there's no small parts theater director there's no small parts there's no small parts <laughs> tell him what his motivation is <laughs> They did consider other people for Frank at the insistence of the producers, but after Tim came in for his audition, said, let's rip it up, and then launched into his song, they said they never had a chance. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe that they ever considered, like, it It seems like, I'm curious to know what Richard's mother is like, because it seems <laughs> like the role, is there a chance his mother is Tim Curry? <laughs> <laughs> It just so seems like the role for Tim Curry. Okay, it, yeah, it's really coming together now, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does he ever maybe refer to Tim Curry as mom? <laughs> In the commentary, he did let that slip a few times. Yeah. Barry Bostwick came over to the movie after he originated the role of Danny Zuko in Greece, which I did not know. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he plays Brad, and Susan Sarandon had been in a few movies already. Mm -hmm. I'm a big Sarand head. She's amazing. Me too. In life, in movies. I think she's great. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the gang was trepidatious, since so many of them were tight from being in the stage show together already. But these interlopers fit in great, and I do think that the chemistry of them all enjoying each other's company is clear on screen. A hundred percent. Susan got pneumonia almost immediately. It was really funny in the commentary when O'Brien mentioned it, and Patricia was like, please don't talk about that. I love her, but it's all she ever talks about with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> You also have Meatloaf in here as Eddie. It was very funny to hear Patricia's impression of him being like, hey, how you, hon? Yeah. <laughs> that, was her, that was her Meatloaf impression. You also have Brian Thompson doing the amazing set design and Pierre LaRoche doing the makeup for the film. That's an integral part of the like glam aesthetic. Without this makeup, the movie does not sing the way it does. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the makeup is incredible. It is like, like that is the... They got just, like, that aesthetic element of it so... It just... It feels very 60s. Like, it feels very B-movie mm -hmm. in a way that I feel like the makeup and the set are so integral to. Yeah, definitely. Also, a big part of the movie is the great costuming done by Sue Blaine. Her distinctly androgynous style, a lot of people sort of look at her at the origination of the punk look, uh, sort of a precursor to Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's work. And while they claim to be the first, as Richard quoted from Coco Chanel in the commentary, those who think they're original have no sense of history. So, who's to say? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. This costuming is, in fact, what Richard credits with the show's success. He said... They've asked a lot of people to interpret the show's success, and they all seem to miss the very obvious answer. It allows the kids to dress up. Uh -huh. I see guys on the street in fishnet stockings and corsets, and I think it's terrific. It's a major breakthrough. Women have been cross-dressing for years. Now they can wear almost anything, but a man can't. Thanks to Rocky Horror, a guy can put on fishnets and strut his stuff and feel okay. I think kids are also responding to Rocky because there's an element of naivete about it, which is very endearing and not threatening. Its innocence is its strength. All the characters appear to be sophisticated, knowledgeable people, but they're really not, which allows people of a similar adolescent nature to feel they could be a part of the whole thing, and now, in fact, they are. Oh, what a lovely, yeah. what a lovely thing to say. <laughs> what a lovely reflection. <laughs> 
Good job. For the stage. Yeah, I, I thought that was great. Really great quote. Um, yeah. And, and pretty insightful, I think, in terms of really allowing people to break through barriers that they might otherwise feel embarrassed to explore. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. There, There is, like, this element just like being at a historically women's college where like there are just no cisgender men there is always some element of cross-dressing happening like in a on a campus that is very inclusive that's very like gender inclusive and so Mm -hmm. that that's always just like a very cool part of that show i think because there are all of these like there are just so many ways that you can feminize or make masculine these different characters right yeah i think it's very cool it's i mean the whole thing is drag to me right like i think there's not a single character that is not in drag (laughs) right they're all a pastiche even even brad in his khakis and exactly clark kent glasses and everything exactly Movie musicals weren't really in vogue at the time and had almost vanished by the time they're working on the movie in 1975. So their six weeks to film wasn't just because of the budget, but also like trying to get the last gasp of an audience for the movie, basically. Yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't get that because after playing eight test market cities in late September, the film was deemed a failure and shelved instead of seeing wide release. They tried again, pairing it with Phantom of the Paradise in second-run theaters, but it didn't stick, at least not until the midnight showings that began at Waverly Theater in New York City on April Fool's Day, 1976. The Waverly is a very well-known midnight movie theater, successful runs of El Topo, Night of the Living Dead, and the manager, Denise Borden, was fascinated with Rocky Horror. And she began her own personal hype campaign. She was, like, sticking up photos in the box office window, uh, in the theater, like, recording, when you would call to be like, what are the movies playing? Uh, She specifically was like, you don't want to miss Rocky Horror. Who hasn't been a little pushy about a new favorite, right? Yeah. So the movie starts to develop a pretty serious cult following, and Denise would play the soundtrack beforehand to warm up the audience, who responded to the party atmosphere by getting into it with what Jim Sharman called typical Saturday morning serial stuff. Booing the villain, cheering the heroes, that sort of thing. Yeah. And a Staten Island teacher named Lewis got so worked up watching the movie one Labor Day weekend in 1976 that he yelled, Buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch, at Janet walking in the rain. (laughs) (laughs) credited as the first counterpoint dialogue that would become a fixture of the show. Yeah. And this audience interaction snowballed with a costume party at a Halloween screening that saw a lot of costumes from the movie, then people spontaneously lip-syncing to the pre-show record developed into this floor show. And, you know, it's beyond just even dialogue at this point. People are throwing rice and cards and shooting water pistols. They were even bringing candles until the fire department shut that down because people were wearing newspaper on their head, famously flammable. Right. (laughs) Right, that's also called fuel. Yeah. (laughs) Kindling, right, yeah. Yeah, that's kindling. Rocky Horror Picture Show, though, does have the longest-running release in film history. The Clinton Street Theater in Oregon was even playing it to empty theaters during the pandemic to keep the streak alive. The soundtrack alone was on the Billboard charts for over a year. Incredibly long legs on this, despite the initial flop that it released to. Yeah. Apparently, even Princess Diana was a huge fan. She told Tim Curry it quite completed her education. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, I mean, hey, good for her. Princess Di, the people's princess. She loves the people's, Rocky Horror, This right? is the thing. This is what makes her the people's princess. This is why every mother still thinks about her. That's right. That's exactly right. That reason is why, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Our first royal who was a big fan of Rocky Horror. (laughs) No one really can say that. That's true. That's absolutely true. The movie had a total budget of $1.2 million, didn't make a profit at first, but as of 2008, had made a reported $139 million. One has to assume that has only continued rising as befits its status yeah. as the best horror movie ever made. Mm-hmm. So that's the context of it. Let's get into the actual movie itself. Uh, it does start pushing gender dynamic boundaries right away because the lips are Patricia yes. Quinn's, but the voice is Richard O'Brien's. They literally had to clamp Patricia's head to a board to keep it from moving during this. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I. Uh, that sounds awful, but it looks great. I gotta say. It looks great. Look, and it worked. 
And that's what all that matters in Hollywood. They say art is pain. Exactly. <laughs> in the stage show, Patricia was the one who sang the song, and they asked her to do the movie, but said, oh, we can't have the usherette open the movie. So she lost the song, and she told them to shove the movie up their ass, which, which shocked them. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> that's what she said in the commentary. And she also said, always tell them no after lunch. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay, so she's kind of like a Hollywood genius. Yeah, she's got it figured out. Yeah, she's a showbiz whiz. (laughs) But they begged her to see the sets and the costume drawings, and so she said, all right, I'll start tomorrow. She did also plug her dentist, Veronica Morris, DDS, while we were watching the teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Shouts out to Veronica. Yeah, and, and what better way to shout out your dentist? Right, that's the business then card right there. Then to just zoom in on your teeth. <laughs> they had intended to show clips of all the stuff that they mentioned in the song, but then added up the licensing fees. And we're like, uh, maybe not, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on the last day of filming, they rapped, then were inspired by the 1966 Man Ray promo poster for the L.A. County Museum of Art, which featured a giant pair of lips in the sky. So there, there mm-hmm. you go. Wow. Hard to see. Hard to see the through line, but... Apparently it's there. <laughs> well, Patricia Quinn is, um, she's magenta, right? Right. Right. Okay. And we fade in on the happy wedding party emerging from the church. Everyone grinning except Tim Curry, Patricia Quinn, and Richard O'Brien. They're parodying American Gothic right behind them as the church staff. Patricia said it was freezing cold and she'd never smoked weed before. But Richard was like, hey, do you want some weed? And she was going through it during this scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's so... That's so scary, especially when your environment has already been made to look like a nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about feeding the paranoia, for sure, for sure. (laughs) Truly. Yeah. Ralph and Betty are stoked, and Ralph says to Brad, hey, you're up next, right? And so he thinks about it. He nervously talks with his girlfriend, Janet, about how lucky the bride and groom are before he decides he loves the way she beat the other girls to the bride's bouquet. So damn it, Janet. Here's the ring to prove that he's no joker. Mm Mm-hmm. They just got to go see the man who began it when they met in his science exam it, and that's Dr. Everett Von Scott. Mm-hmm. I love the juxtaposition of the church staff literally changing over the building for a funeral behind them as they're singing about how in love they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have no time for it. <laughs> There's also a really funny moment in the commentary where they're pointing out, like, oh, we literally could not pan around in this scene. There's only two angles because they literally could not afford to build the other walls. So it's just the two walls that you see. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And they're like, there's only a certain amount of camera (laughs) movement we can do. (laughs) Exactly. They're like, don't walk too fast because otherwise you're going to go off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're going to sort of fall out of the screen. (laughs) We pull back to reveal this is being watched on a film by the criminologist, played by Charles Gray, and he wants to tell us the story of The Denton Affair. Uh-huh. It's storming heavily as Brad and Janet make their way to Dr. Scott's. They're listening to Nixon's resignation on the radio, and several motorcycles have zoomed past despite the storm. Life's pretty cheap for that type. Yeah. Well, they were all really, they're all really stoned, right? The motorcycle writers, that's why. Yeah, so they're like, we died years ago. (laughs) (laughs) This forest is filled with the ghosts of motorcycles past. (laughs) Eventually, the storm and the blowout drives them off the road. But when all seems lost, there is a light over at the Frankenstein place, which is Oakley Court, now a hotel, but built in 1859 and right next to Hammer Films Bray Studios. A lot of great films filmed right there. They're greeted by Richard O'Brien's riffraff, although greeted is generous, more like observed. Yeah, Yeah, they're sort of, um, they're, yeah, they're ushered in like, like an interesting butterfly might be. Exactly. And also kind of reluctantly as well. He's like, it's only after they see more motorcycles that he's like, all right, get in here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is pretty inconvenienced by the whole thing. There's also this great clock with a skeleton in it. Apparently, it was not only real, but the husband of the lady who had the clock made. Wow. Yeah. She said, how better (laughs) to remember my beloved husband than to entomb him in this clock forever? Yeah. (laughs) And I get it. Awesome. (laughs) Love is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) 
beautiful. It really is. It's awesome to see what happens with couples <laughs> when they both share some kind of brain disease that's only killed one of them. <laughs> I wonder what she had done. She's like the chandelier is made out of her bones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but she's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> They have arrived on a very special night. It's one of the Master's affairs. And as a way of explanation, they get the time warp sang at them by the Transylvanians. It is overwhelming for Janet, who faints multiple times mid-song, which is really, really Uh funny to me. That is really great. She is freaked out, and she wants to leave. Frank, however, sneakily appears behind them. And he's all caped up. It's very impressive and dramatic, especially as he starts to sing. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's um, got amazing heels. Oh, yeah. And he's sort of tapping his uh, he's tapping his foot. As he honestly dons the most incredible outfit, he looks amazing. Mm-hmm. No doubt, no doubt. And he reveals, through the song Sweet Transvestite, this corset and garters underneath. They actually considered going, like, Wizard of Oz with it and being in black and white until he tosses off this cape and brings them into the new world, but they decided no. I honestly think that might have been interesting. I understand why they were scared about it, but, I mean, I would like to see that version, maybe. I know. I I kind of... Did did someone just, like, forget at the end (laughs) when they were done with it? They're like, fuck, we let the whole thing color. (laughs) Jim, that was supposed to be your job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, God, I used the money on the color for the first part instead of another wall. (laughs) Damn it. Dude, you're always doing that. Always doing that, man. <laughs> every movie, every movie, you're constantly forgetting to build the wall in place of yeah, and that color. and that young man became Steven Spielberg. That's true, and the guy who was talking to him are. was the shark. Yep. <laughs> in the stage show, time warp actually comes after the introduction, and I think it works way better in the movie as sort of this like setting up of yeah. the reveal for Frank. Me too. They're invited up to the lab to see what's on the slab. They're stripped to their undies on the way up. Frank forcefully flirts with both Brad and Janet, then with the unconventional conventionists in the gallery, reveals that he can give life. And today is the day Rocky is being born. Uh In this creation scene and tank are heavily inspired by Universal's Frankenstein and Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein. It's sick. It looks great. Lots of great waves and lights and wheels and colors. You see the skeleton through the bandages. And suddenly it's true. Rocky lives and is a hunk. Amazing scene. Yeah, just this, uh, the unmummification of Rocky. (laughs) He's built. He's built with food dye. (laughs) He's built with food dye and he's built with meatloaf. That's That's exactly right. (laughs) The sword of Damocles is hanging over his head, though, because it turns out he hates being alive. Yeah, (laughs) he is begging to be... (laughs) He is begging to be killed almost immediately. <laughs> look, I don't want to say it's relatable, but I mean, look. I know. No one asked for it is all I can say, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, why are why are we born screaming, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Send me back. Yeah. <laughs> Frank is pissed at this lack of gratitude and reciprocation of affection. But since he's such an exceptional beauty, he's prepared to forgive him. But then he gets even more pissed off when Columbia isn't that into Rocky, and then Janet isn't that impressed either, and he's just Uh fucking livid now. And he says, check this shit out. He's so buff that I'm going to sing about it. And in just Uh seven days, I can make you a man. And it's a double entendre. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They got it. They did it. They got it. Suddenly, Eddie bursts from deep freeze. It's Meatloaf. He sings a fun song about whatever happened a Saturday night when we liked overweight bikers that played the saxophone. The good old days. I mean, it's a good question. It right. is a good question. <laughs> I do like Hoppatootie as the so- like the song here. I think um, I think it's a really fun song. I do too. <laughs> it's a really fun song. It's a really fun song. I will say it does quickly prove why we probably stopped playing saxophone while riding the bike. <laughs> Because everyone is cowards, you mean? Yeah, because everyone is cowards. And I guess we just decided that would be okay. Yeah. Bring it back. That's what I'm saying. Bring it back. Yeah. 
even even Rocky is getting into it, and this is the last straw. Yeah, Frank Rocky's had enough. like <laughs> Rocky's like finally a reason to live. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, wow, truly, I am the bat out of hell. <laughs> yeah. So Frank has had enough. He takes an ice pick to Eddie for the disruption. Uh, one from the vaults is a very funny quip. Yes. And so he and Rocky wedding march down to a bed that emerges, and we check in with the criminologist, uh, who says, life is an illusion, reality is a figment of the imagination, the hits. <laughs> um, Brad and Janet are shown to separate rooms, both of which has have cameras watching them with Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia on the other side. Mm-hmm. And Brad comes in to have sex with Janet. Or is it him? Or is he? It's actually Frank, in disguise, and he convinces her to open up, Promise you won't tell Brad, she says, as she falls back giggling under the libertine spell. Mm-hmm. I love uh, the gauzy curtains here. It's kind of an interesting way because there is like a, a, a joyous eroticism to some of this, but also it does sort of divorce it from the salaciousness by just making it the silhouettes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it feels it feels good hearted still instead of lascivious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so much more like that's that's the kind of thing where I feel like the burlesque nature of it steers so much more campy than sexual. Right. <laughs> like there is no way you could watch those scenes and genuinely be like, this was sexual. This was <laughs> intimate. <laughs> it's like, no, these were this was the closest you can get to being Muppets, but while being people. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Hey, and that's why Tim Curry was in Muppet Treasure Island. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah, also a companion piece. Right. (laughs) That's the trilogy. Yeah. Downstairs, Riff Raff taunts Rocky with some hot wax and fire, since he's chained to the bed, but he rips away so hard that the bed breaks and Rocky climbs down the elevator shaft. Meanwhile, Janet comes into Brad's room to have sex. Or is it her? No, it's actually Frank in disguise who convinces him to open up. Promise you won't tell Janet, he says, as he falls back moaning under the libertine spell. Yeah. <laughs> they repeat it, you see. That was, that's yes. the bit I'm doing for the audience at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same scene. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, I like it. I really like this sort of like... Brad is so, like, buttoned up that for him to, like, fall into the bisexual nature of the movie, you're just like, oh, okay, Brad. I know. I mean, but that's the thing is he's kind of, uh, he's kind of down from the start. Yeah. Yeah, he is. You're right. You have to see it. You have to, like, look past it, though. It's like, you don't notice that on the first one. And then as you watch it over and over again, you see that he is, he is intrigued. Yeah, he's intrigued from the start, but he is so buttoned up. You know, he's like such a good suburban boy. Right, exactly. They're interrupted, though, by Riff Raff with news of Rocky's escape. The dogs have been set on him as he runs outside, which is tragic. Just a tragic yeah. sight to see. <laughs> Janet is sad about having cheated on Brad, but then she checks a camera and sees his postcoital smoking with Frank. Also very funny. Mm-hmm. She finds Rocky hurt from the chase and dressing his wounds falls for his charms. She wants to be dirty, she says. Yeah. I mean, listen, you're fresh from you're fresh from seeing your fiance boyfriend. You're fresh from seeing that you're going to go straight for the lab experiment. That's right. This is this is the response, right? Yeah. It's an oft experienced trauma response from women is to go straight for whoever came out of the lab, whatever (laughs) came out of the experiment. We should all be so lucky if it's just Rocky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This was actually sort of your best case scenario. (laughs) It's normally a series of cells. (laughs) Frank is kicking the shit out of Riff Raff for letting Rocky get away, but suddenly Dr. Scott is at the door with a shotgun, and they say, you know this earthling, I mean person, which is like the first Uh sort of sign that they're like, oh, by the way, we're setting up aliens here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's where like the sci-fi part of it comes in because then you're suddenly like, oh, right, this was the 70s. This was like a very specific time for America. That's right. (laughs) Frank is pissed because he knows Dr. Scott is part of the FBI and they bring him from the Zen room up to them with a magnet, which is a really funny scene as he cruises up, then crashes through a wall. And then they say, great, Scott. 
because his name is Scott. Sometimes yeah. the simple ones work. Exactly. <laughs> Look, sometimes the first draft is the best draft. It's true. It's absolutely true. That's where your that's where your heart did most of the writing. <laughs> Turns out Eddie was his nephew and he's looking for him. Everyone does a really funny like name repeating and looking around bit and it's revealed that Janet and Rocky are there too and they're all <laughs> saying each other's name <laughs> looking around. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I do like that. I do like that part because it really feels like they're just they were a minute short. <laughs> They just needed to buy a little bit of time. We cut out that one song and now we're fucked. We need to like just vamp a little bit here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dinner is ready. They look so funny sitting there in their various states of undress. They're like silk robes. Rocky is in his little Mm -hmm. short shorts. One cool detail that they pointed out in the commentary was that the place settings are insane with jam jars and a thousand forks and whatnot because they're from Transylvania and don't know how to do human dinner parties. What's the reasoning? Right. So <laughs> that's why. And Frank carves the meat. There's a really funny moment where Rocky looks really excited to have some wine and he's like threatened into waiting for the toast. <laughs> it's like all of the little physical moments really just make this movie for me. I mean, much like, a, I mean, that's why, you know, when when a baby is born, the first thing you give that baby is a bottle. Right. Because they have come <laughs> into the world knowing that one thing's going to make you happy, and it's a bottle, there you baby. Go, there you go. They sing happy birthday to Rocky, and then they eat. And now that they've all had some, Frank reveals through wordplay that they are, in fact, eating Eddie and then singing Eddie. So funny that Rocky doesn't get it, and he just keeps eating. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) That was a fun thing for me to play. I will say I remember that particularly. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, The big dramatic reveal. People were really a big dramatic reveal, but there's one guy in there who doesn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people really eat that up. (laughs) Turns out that Eddie had smuggled out a poorly spelled note warning Dr. Von Scott that he was in trouble. And Dr. Scott investigated and found out that the Transylvanians were aliens. And in this dramatic moment, Frank rips away the tablecloth, reveals Eddie there all dissected. Uh, Apparently, they for real didn't know that was going to happen, so the reactions are real. Wow. And this reasonably scares Janet. And when where Rocky's instinct is to protect and comfort her, Frank is pissed. So he chases them into the lab. Dr. Von Scott recognizes the sonic transducer that can break someone down and transport them into space. Janet's freaked out. Brad is pissed. And finally, Frank has had enough and just medusas them all, turns them into stone statues. Mm-hmm. Now Columbia has had enough. Frank chews people up and spits them out, she says, going through lovers, then casting them aside. He's a sponge. And so she gets Medusa, too, when the ultimatum of her or Rocky is thrown. And then Rocky is Medusa as well. And Frank just weeps in despair at having lost Rocky and Eddie, thanks to having splitting his brain between them. The truth comes Mm -hmm. out. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Everyone, literally everyone's pissed. Magenta is like, when are we going back to Transylvania? And Frank prepares backstage. I love this moment. He just throws his arm at the breakers and then hits them all. And he's got curlers and stuff. It's really great. And this leads into my personal favorite song, Rose Tint My World. Yes. It is just the anthemic blast wrap-up song here at the end. I love it so much. Well, that song, I feel like, is the most sort of, like, love letter parody of cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, of, like what movies especially like what these very early musical movies looked like and the kind of you know the kind of like constant synchronized swimming that you were seeing right Right. and and the song is about like accepting yourself and liberation and everything it all really works for the show's themes and and you know there's the rko logo uh he talks about being inspired by Faye ray to be given to absolute pleasure just just really a, a satisfying movie moment. Uh-huh. Don't dream it, be it, he sings. And that's ain't that the truth. Yes. And he's joined by the rest who all smooch in the pool together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone's pretty tired by then. <laughs> they're going to start kissing. That's right. And, you know, they're all in corsets and everything now. They're all dressed up like Frank. <laughs> yeah. 
and and so, I mean even even Doctor Scott is back and all dressed up. The doors slam open. It's Riff Raff and Magenta. They got a glow up too. He's been made commander because the Transylvanians have deemed Frank's mission a failure. He got too wrapped up in hedonism, so now he's a prisoner, and they're returning home to Transylvania. Quite a turn. Whatever for Riff Raff to suddenly yeah. be commander. In, in this explain to or attempt to explain, Frank solemnly sings I'm Going Home with the rest as a choir off to the side. Uh, he's doing Marilyn Monroe. He's doing Judy Garland. He's singing to the damn rafters. Yes. He's weeping, mascara running. It's ooh, powerful. Yeah. It is gorgeous. Yeah, it is. It really is. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking that Tim would have understood the assignment if he was going to be in Mamma Mia 3. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, look, if we're going to have to use AI for stuff. (laughs) And I don't want this to happen. But if I was going to want AI to do anything, if you are listening and you know how to do AI stuff, (laughs) spend all of the money on Tim Curry. That's right. That's exactly right. Look, the people are demanding it. We're saying yes. we're already heading down this path. It fucking sucks. Yeah. So you might give us something, right? Give us one thing. Give us something. <laughs> yeah. Come on. One little Tim Curry. One little Tim Curry. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Magenta, however, is unimpressed. She's yawning. Suddenly the rest of the Transylvanians are filling out the audience. They cheer, but it's not enough. How sentimental, Magenta says as the crowd vanishes. And how presumptuous Riff's Riff <laughs> Just a really funny, like, the way that they interact is really great. Oh, it's amazing. He says, when I said we're returning home, I meant Magenta and myself. We're going to antimatter laser you, Frankenfurter. So say goodbye to all this and hello to Oblivion. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Columbia screams and Riff Raff shoots her first. And then Frank gets shot in the back next as he climbs the curtains. And you can say it's curtains for him. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, you could, you could say that, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, with the heaviest of hearts, you could absolutely say that. <laughs> Rocky is sad. And when Riff Raff tries to laser him for good measure, the antimatter just bounces off of him. And so he carries Frank to the top of the RKO Tower in this homage to King Kong before eventually falling into the waters below after enough shots hit him. Um, apparently, according to the commentary, they originally wanted this to be the 20th Century Fox logo with that giant Oh, wow. Rooftop. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting considering how well the like King Kong stuff fits into the movie to be like, oh, that's sort yeah. of a second choice. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Riff Raff is in a paranoid fit, and when Scott is like, you did the right thing, you're okay with me, aliens. <laughs> he, he, warns, he warns Scott to leave now before the whole castle is beamed back to the planet transsexual, which they do. Frank's corpse floats in the pool in an homage to Sunset Boulevard, which is also a mm-hmm. fantastic movie. The fourth companion piece, the secret yes. one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, Gloria Swanson is in this one, too, right? That's right. That's right. And there's also the monkey that she has <laughs> the funeral for. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, lot of little winks to it. Yeah. Movies are all connected. It's crazy. It really is. You know, it's a it's beautiful It's crazy. Web. It's just... <laughs> It's just the one long movie. <laughs> so I remember when Dr. Frank is like, oh, no, the train is coming right at the screen and I'm terrified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a, a nice subtle callback to the first movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is really nice. <laughs> and it's nice to feel like it all ties in. Exactly. There's no there's no what is this doing here? Exactly. You're always the brain is always looking for patterns. <laughs> they can all do the time warp again. Uh, Magenta sings this song about how she's looking forward to returning home and the castle lifts off. And if you're watching the UK version, Brad sings the song Superheroes, which is admittedly a bummer. And that's why it was cut for the US version. <laughs> yeah, I have not seen that version. It's kind of it's kind of sad. I like I like it just cutting back to the criminologist who says, oh, we're yeah. done here. Let's shut off the lights. The globe in his office remains lit for the credits. 
Uh, it's a nice, nice cap out, and we get to just imagine that they're all having a good time now that they're liberated. Yeah. And now, Brothy, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. All right. So, first of all, you've got everything that you need in a horror movie. Number one, you've got Susan Sarandon. Number two, you've got corsets. You've got fishnets. Honestly, it's the, it is the most fun and interactive horror movie. It's a little bit, it's sort of like if a movie got drunk. So that's kind of funny <laughs> because just as a movie, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But you're like, oh, you're fun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, we're doing aliens now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The movie itself is a fun drunk that you're like, oh, this is delightful. Yeah. I'm not worried. <laughs> Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is leveraging the language of horror in such a loving and interesting way to create something that is so wholly unique. And I think it's really hard for parody to exceed the thing that it is parodying. Mm -hmm. But I think that in very rare instances, it can be done. And I think that because it knows the the material that it's satirizing inside and out, yeah. while also allowing itself to be earnest in its own low-budgetness, yes. it just creates such a beautiful middle-of-the-Venn diagram that pushes it way beyond anything that it is referencing. I think you're totally right. It's very lovingly made. Like, yeah. it's every part of it is very, it's very deliberate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's nothing, it doesn't feel like any, and, and like, the performances are like that, too. And yes. everything is, in a weird way, very cohesive. And there is, like, a, there's a camaraderie, and there's, like, a, there, there's like a community that you find yourself becoming a part of, even through like these outsider POVs, you know? And that I feel like is the most sort of successful, fun movie Definitely. is one where as you are taken seriously as an outsider, and then you believe why you would end up as an insider. Definitely. Definitely. And it is also unique in the way that it has extended beyond the screen. The community that it has made yeah. through real people, these people who are part of the fan clubs and the shadow casts and everything, who come together every week to watch this movie and celebrate their love for it and each other and the things that it's referencing. It is incredible. No other movie that I can think of, even ones with huge fan bases, have quite the same level of devotion that this movie does. And as you said, the performances are all outrageous. I mean, Susan Sarandon, we've already talked about my deep love for her, and the performance here is incredible. Barry Bostwick, also great. Honestly, a little kind of under-loved, uh, I think, a lot of the times, because yeah. it is the straight man role, and because everyone else is so great, that he kind of gets left off to the side a few times. And I, I want to shout out Barry Bostwick, who does a great job. Yeah. But of course, Tim... Tim is the is is the heart and soul of this, and and he is just so fantastic. Um, there's one there's one more quote from Richard that I thought was a good description, where he said, "I've always thought of Frank as a cross between Ivan the Terrible and Cruella Deville of Walt Disney's 101 Dalmatians. It's that sort of evil beauty that's attractive. I found Brad and Janet very appealing too, especially the whole 50s image of boy girl relationships." But in the end, you see that Janet is not the weak little thing that society demands her to be, and Brad is not necessarily the pillar of strength. I think that sort of subverting these character roles and allowing the subversion to infiltrate every element of this movie, the costuming, the lyrics, everything about it is subversive and intelligent and just brings you out of your comfort zone in such a great way. It's the best horror movie ever made. There we go. It's the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> Amazing. Hell thank you yes. so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Brothy, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a ton of fun. Please tell the people where they can find you, anything you want to point them towards. Well, you can uh, find me at my address, and it is... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be at the following coordinates. 
Um, <laughs> no, I'm on Twitter at Brothi Gupta. That's B-R-O-T-I-G-U-P-T-A. For however long it takes for Twitter to, you know, become <laughs> just a shadow of itself because Elon Musk forgot his login or That's whatever. Right. That's right. I'm also on Instagram, that that same handle, and where else? I'm, I mean, I guess there's probably no way to find me here, but if you want to experience whatever I'm doing at any given moment, it is probably watching one very specific clip from MasterChef Junior, where an (laughs) eight-year-old child is talking about a a Texas steakhouse-style meal that she has made. Oh, okay. Get the Brothy Gupta experience. Yeah, it's alarming. She's eight, and she says that she she likes to preserve the rusticity of a Texas steakhouse. Oh my god! It's, yeah, it's really alarming. Um, I highly recommend watching it and feeling weird. I also highly recommend watching just clips of whenever there's a child, whenever there's like a ten year old boy on America's Got Talent, and he's singing like a a power ballad because it's like. There's no way this resonates with you. Right. You're a little boy. You're a little boy wearing a suit. What do you mean? Listen, I am alone at a crossroads. (laughs) (laughs) You were born a minute ago. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. But gorgeous voice. My my dad was a big America's Got Talent fan for a long time. And so you'd just like, I'd like be walking past the living room and see like a five-year-old singing Pavarotti and be like, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, it is the best. I think one of the funniest things in the world is a small child singing just and and it's also so funny because and I sort of understand this because I grew up speaking Bengali and I also grew up singing and so I grew up learning a lot of Bengali songs the translations of which I knew not at all because they were because Bengali songs they're like the lyrics are often not conversational Bengali right and much like much like that scenario, are there so many just 10-year-old children for whom English is their second language, and for some reason, they are singing about being left at an altar. <laughs> they <laughs> so love it. They love it. They love it. So that's sort of what – so that's where you'll find me. All right. Great plug <laughs> is section. Is on the other side of the screen. <laughs> Of Absolutely. that exact video. <laughs> I get hey, I get it, I get it. We all we all have our own that video, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. As far as my plugs, you can find me at Little Horror PHL on Blue Sky, which I have now made an account on. Hopefully it is a replacement for Twitter, which I agree is a fucking nightmare now. <laughs> Even more so than it had been. So you know, check out if you're on Blue Sky, it's Little Horror PHL. That username applies to Letterboxd and Instagram as well, if you're on either of those platforms. We've had a lot of really great episodes lately that you could go back and check out. Aaron Whitehead was just on talking about You've Got Mail as a horror movie, so that was really fun. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And if you're really enjoying the show, you can check out the Patreon, where we have all kinds of bonus stuff, including John Mackey just came on to do, we, we read through a Choose Your Own Adventure book about uh, MoonQuest, and and so uh, that was a really fun time. We do all kinds of fun stuff. A, a live show that we uh, just had was put up there recently, so lots of fun bonus stuff. Check out the Patreon, Little Horror PHL. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.